are they built for the way we used to work or are they built for the way we're working today? And a lot of teams don't even ask that question. They never challenge it. They just armed everybody with a Zoom account and went for it. <laughs> hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Future Work Podcast. I'm your host, Dan, and today I'm speaking with Chase Warrington, one of the world's leading authorities on remote work. Chase is the head of remote at Doist, an async-first company that created the famous Todoist tool and has over 100 people distributed across 35 countries. Chase is a LinkedIn top voice for remote work and has been featured by Forbes, BBC, Fast Company, the World Economic Forum, and more. Today, we're going to be talking about what any company can learn from his fully remote one, how Doist keeps people consistently engaged online, but also why his company is remote, yet he loves getting together in person. So let's dive in. Chase, welcome to the podcast. I wanted to directly jump in and ask you about this world of asynchronous remote work. Does it really work? I recently had Brian Elliott, the founder of Future Forum, on, and he said that getting together at least once a quarter is a non-negotiable for him. How do you feel about that? Well, I totally agree with Brian and I love his work. I try to read everything that he puts out there. So I would totally agree with him. It's one of the more challenging aspects. And I think this is why somewhat interestingly, I'm probably one of the few head of remotes out there pushing for more synchronicity, <laughs> less async, more sync in our space, because we kind of naturally fell into this trap over the years where we got so good at asynchronous communication and so bought into that messaging that we we forgot that we needed to actually connect with each other on a human level that, yeah, we can get our work done and we can have great lives outside of work in conjunction with that, you know, great work-life balance and work-life integration and things like that. But there's more to it than that. You know, we want to feel that team cohesiveness and connection with your teammates. And really that starts with how you work together. We also fully buy into the, we're a team, not a family kind of mentality. So it's okay to accept the fact that how we work together really drives those relationships first. And then we sprinkle in some of the human connection that you get in a more serendipitous, personal manner. But it's, I think one important factor there is that we put a lot of thought into how our people can connect with each other in the ways that we're working, you know, solving problems together and making sure that there's cross-functional opportunities to work together is really core to how we work. And so we put a lot of thought into that because we're remote first. And then on top of that, we have things like we built out like a pretty robust social calendar where we have activities going on every month that people can join virtually. We revamped our perks to, for example, you know, help subsidize costs to go meet up with teammates in person. We do mentorship trips where we bring people together. We do two retreats every year where we bring the whole team together for a week of communication, collaboration, connection, all that. So Chase, what are some of the ways that you help people get together? I read somewhere that you actually give individual people budgets to do so. That's right. Yeah, we do in-person meetups in a, in a few different ways. So we have, first of all, this is especially important, we think, when you're first hired. So we do mentorship trips. A new hire will get sent for a week to work with their mentor face-to-face -face and during that time, it's not all work. It should be a lot of, you know, just getting to know each other and, and chit-chatting and hanging out and letting the mentor sort of be a tour guide for a week and let that person get a great first impression of the company, but also get settled into the workflows and, and things like that. 
We also subsidize the costs for people who want to meet up. So for example, I happened to just be in Greece recently and I had a teammate that was nearby and she and her husband came down and visited and used the meetup perk, the Duist meetup perk, we call it, to subsidize that trip and do some fun things together. So that perk encouraged us to to hang out together and spend a week together. Then we do these two retreats per year. One we call mini retreat. It's with your direct team. So like the Apple team or the marketing team, they go to a place for a week and spend a week together working, but also, you know, just hanging out and getting to know each other a little bit better. And then about six months later, we do what we call Duist Connect, which is our company-wide all-hands team retreat for a week. And that's the one we just returned from a week in Italy which was fantastic out in Tuscany, really enjoyed that. So those are some of the ways we're doing the in-person aspect. And, and we really believe in this mentality of like remote first, but not remote only. That aspect of how we work together is completely crucial and was a huge game changer. We, we started doing those retreats back in 2015, I believe was the first one and complete game changers for us as a, as a organization. Yeah, that sounds amazing, but it also sounds quite expensive. One of the benefits that we often hear about remote work is that you save money on office space, right? So in your case, do you end up spending those savings on retreats? Yeah, you do. I mean, I think we really look at it as like a reinvest those funds back into your people. And we're not remote first for the cost savings, I guess you would say. It's a benefit in a lot of other ways. You know, depending on where you're located, I, those numbers will look a little different. If you're trading out, you know, Times Square office space and going remote first, you're probably going to, you could probably do about 10 of those retreats before you, <laughs> you cut into those savings. But for, you know, the average team that maybe had just a bit of office space here and there, I would say you're probably breaking even. But yeah, you need to budget, you know, for one retreat. I mean, I, you need to budget several thousand US dollars per person for a four or five day retreat you know, depending on how well, you know, to what degree you want to do certain things, there's a lot of levers you can pull. But in our case, yeah, we, it's a big investment. But one of the interesting facts, I think, is that this past year, we tightened the belt a good bit, like a lot of companies, you know, with the recession looming and, you know, just not knowing what was over the horizon. We tightened the belt, we cut a lot of things, we went on a hiring freeze, but we actually increased the amount of money we were willing to spend on our retreats which I think was pretty, pretty fascinating and kind of speaks to how important we think this aspect of remote work is. Yeah, for sure. It's very interesting. And I'm sure that besides money, it's also a big investment in time, right? So who ensures that the logistics are done well and that there's a great payoff on the investment of getting people together? Yeah. So it falls on me. It's it's a core part of my job. And fortunately, I love travel logistics and planning of events. I'm, I'm actually like for being someone who's in a head of remote role that you might think is very, um, you know, focused on the virtual experience. I am a huge fan of the in-person human experience and what that does to support the greater future of work mission. So yeah, I'm fortunate that it's a core part of my job. I get to handle the logistics. I do hire people in the localities that we're going to and, you know, get some assistance from local vendors and such. But but yeah, we actually decided that we thought about outsourcing this. Like there are companies out there that you can outsource the whole process to, but our CEO is a big fan of the idea that, you know, this is a core part of how we build our culture. And there are certain things that you outsource and certain things that you don't. And just this is not, you know, a broad stroke for everyone out there. It just happens to be that in our case, we really like the idea of keeping this internal 
and keeping it very much so in line with like everything that Doist is about, both in the way that we approach work while we're there and the in the way that we approach you know, the stipends that we give people to travel and the travel logistics in general, the communication, all of that, it actually just works better for us to keep it internal. But you're right. It is a huge undertaking. And I think it has to be a very strategic decision for a company to decide, like, should we keep this internal or should we outsource this to someone who, who does it really, really well? Because yes, it is a core part of your culture and there are some benefits to having an internal person plan it, but everything's trade-offs, right? So me focusing on that aspect of how we work is pulling me away from, from other things that I could be doing. And so if it wasn't a strength or if it wasn't something I enjoyed, there's certainly you know vendors out there that could do a phenomenal job and take that off your plate. And I would certainly suggest like evaluating that as an option if your company's, you know, going down this path and trying to decide which route to take and thinking really, you know, carefully about that. Well, yeah, I mean, that's really speaks to that idea of this is a huge investment, right? So how do you go about planning for a retreat like this, right? Because if you don't see your people that often, and you get them together, and you make that investment, you better not miss, right? So how do you make sure that these retreats are really, really valuable? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, I, I get a lot of questions coming in from somebody like the the common narrative around this would be, hey, Chase, you know, I'm the head of accounting or more often it's like I'm the chief of staff or the, the head of people ops. And, you know, I've just been tasked with we have to do retreats now because everybody's doing them remote and hey, I got to do a retreat. <laughs> well, I, I love the conversations and I'm happy to keep those going. I, I feel bad for someone who gets tasked with this when it's not what they were hired to do. It's not what they enjoy doing and it's and it's not their strength. You know, they could be living in their little individual zone of genius in another space, but they're being tasked with doing this. And therefore, they're focused a lot on, you know, finding a venue, creating an itinerary and getting everybody there. And that's like, you know, if you can do that, then you've done 70% of the work, but you've missed a big opportunity in terms of how can this retreat really serve your business needs And that's where the key to this whole thing comes in. Yes, you're going to do it. Yes, everybody's going to have a great time. You want to get everybody there. You want to make sure they're safe and fed and entertained and that some work gets done. But how does it connect with your company's core values? How does it help you solve your greatest challenges? And and how do you make sure that people are getting real meaningful connection out of it? And it takes thinking very strategically about that. So in our case, what we decided, I mean, there was a few things. One, we we really stepped back and thought about our retreat strategy. Like, yes, we're doing this and we're going to invest in it and we know we're going to do them, but how does it serve our business needs and what do we really want to get out of it? And one of the key determinations that came out of that is that we don't see these as a great space for getting a lot of work done. We're actually purposefully built as a team to optimize our workflows for asynchronous communication, working across time zones, deep work, things like that. Retreats aren't great for that, for any of that. Being being in person doesn't facilitate any of that. So we kept going on these sometimes and trying to get a lot of work done, but really finding that juice wasn't worth the squeeze. Like we were just not getting a lot out of them. We were getting something, there was some value there, but it wasn't worth spending all the resources that we were just to come together and try to solve like one problem when we probably could have done it just as well asynchronously and and remote. So what we decided was that while it might seem like a huge investment on the surface to look at these as just a mainly a space to connect on a personal level, that's really what they serve the best purpose for. So 
We rebranded our event to Doist Connect. We used the word connect for the team. The whole company voted on it. And, you know, it could have been Doist work or collaborate or, you know, something like that. But we really feel like the focus is on connection. So we've got this formula that we try to live by, which is our itinerary is built up of 20% work, 30% activities, and 50% R&R, rest and relaxation. And I really find that in that 50%, that's where the true breakthroughs happen. That's where the real conversations, the serendipity comes from, and the real deep connection comes from. And this is backed up by lots of data. It's not just an opinion. So that's the strategy in a nutshell is to really recalibrate for what we think these work well for. We still get some work done. You know, when we're doing that 20% is hyper-focused. We do it really well. We put a lot of effort into it to make sure that goes well. There's still always room for improvement, but it's about finding the right balance for you and figuring out how these major investments serve the needs of the company and not just kind of thinking through it as like, let's just get people there because this is what we need to do. There's a deeper meaning behind it for sure. Yeah. And then is there another side of the success of those retreats? If people only see each other twice a year and it's a really great experience, is there ever the sense of let's see each other more often? Uh, Maybe even a discussion about having some office space in, in certain places? Yeah. So I've asked the team this and and we've landed on two is the perfect, about every six months is the right amount. We've offered potentially host more retreats, but I think everybody really likes the the balance of two. I think if I recall correctly, it was around 80% said two is the perfect number. About 17 or 18% said we could go to three, that would be the max. And then you know a few said I'd prefer just one. One other thing is that we make these all optional And then by introducing the meetup perk that I mentioned earlier, we give those people that want that extra meetup an opportunity to do so. Although not in like a team setting, they can do that sort of thing. Something I'm looking at though, is perhaps doing something along the lines of like a pop-up co-living sort of situation. So it would be, you know, three, four months after the team retreat, we would have co-living rented out that you could optionally just come stay for a week or something, hang out, work. There wouldn't be like a lot of activities planned, but you could, um, your costs would be covered to go do that and work with your teammates and hang out in the evenings and things like that. So we may go to like (laughs) 2.5. Yeah. So it sounds like you're giving people a lot of ways to get together, but it also sounds like you're getting the team very involved in deciding the approach. Is that correct? Yeah, you're right. There's like a few key pillars of communication and collaboration at Doist. And one of them I would say is like, we're very intentional with how we work. So you can see there's a lot of intentionality put into how we're creating these events, but also how we communicate with each other and such. And then another one is transparency. So we've got a pretty democratic approach to work. And you have to be careful with this because if you go, we've gone too democratic before and when you've got too many cooks in the kitchen, things get a bit messy and can be slowed down. So you have to find the right balance. But with very key decisions, we at least like to ask the question to make an informed decision based on what the team wants and needs. And of course, you know, what we can afford and what aligns with the business objectives. But yeah, this is a key part. You know, we want to know what the team prefers. After the retreats, I send out a pretty lengthy survey gathering a lot of data. I think it resulted in like Mm. 13 pages of of data that I have uh, from this most recent one. So anybody could bore themselves to death with that, but I find it fascinating. But yeah, these are some of the key principles that came out of it. I mean, people like about five days, six days is a little too long, cuts into their weekends, four days feels a little too quick, especially for people flying all around the world. Mm. Another one that has emerged is we've gone for this more like rural setting 
outside of major cities. We used to go to major cities and, you know, Santiago, Chile and Athens, Greece, for example. And we're going with more like rural settings where we feel like we kind of like own the space for the entire week. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, these are some things that are emerging. And then the other one is that two seems like the right number. I've heard some teams that do quarterly meetups, some teams that do, you know, even monthly or, or four or five times a year. For us, with our distribution, bringing people in from, you know, Australia and Japan and the south of Chile and, mm. you know, all over the world, it's it gets very cumbersome for them. Mm-hmm. And there's some added expense, not just financially, but like, you know, time and energy and, and such that those people have to put in. So two is the right number for us. <laughs> Okay, so we talked about these great retreats and meetups where people find each other. But what happens in between them? What does work look like at Doist? And what are some practices other companies can get inspired by, even if they're not fully remote? Yeah, this is an interesting point, I think, because I mentioned before, we're a team of around 100 people in 35 countries. We're working completely remote, no offices, and predominantly asynchronously. And a lot of people would tell you those elements can't work. I mean, I see headlines all the time. This doesn't work. You can't do it like that. But we're in a very competitive industry. I mean, our two products, Todoist is a task manager and our biggest competitor is Microsoft in in that regard. And you, you may have heard of them. And then our other product is Twist. Our biggest competitor is Slack with our second biggest competitor, again, being Microsoft with Microsoft Teams. And, you know, we're managing just fine as a bootstrap team of 100 people competing against some of the most powerful companies in the world. So I would argue vehemently that it that it can work. And just because you haven't done it doesn't mean you can't do it. But it takes, again, like a lot of intentionality. It takes a, a very disciplined approach to how you work and how you separate work from the rest of your life. And so, you know, for us at, at Duis, we bought into the async first model, um, meaning that all of our workflows... And communication practices are built around being asynchronous first. So we have very few meetings. We, On average, people have less than two hours of meetings per week. Uh, that includes our executives and CEO who's who loves to share his screenshots of his calendar where he's got 45 minutes of meetings a week. <laughs> Follow him on Twitter if you want to see those. It's hilarious. That should be your entire <laughs> employer branding. All your employer branding should basically just be that, that screenshot of the calendar with only two meetings well, on it. Well, this is the funny thing, right? As people say all the time, like, you know, you have to get in the office to do your meetings and work. And then I see people, everybody saying, I hate meetings. Uh, you know, you see all the data yeah. that says people, yeah. they're not getting much value out of them. And that, you know, 50% of meetings that people are invited to, they would automatically decline if they felt empowered to do so. So we just thought through this and we said, you know, of course we're distributed around the world, which makes it logistically Mm. challenging, but also why are we continuing to force ourselves to do these meetings? What if we just focused really hard on doing things asynchronously, doing that really well, built out a really robust documentation system. We've got a 1200 page handbook that we've just completely revamped that people can reference. You know, we want to be able to reference every question with, there's a link for that. So here we've got a link for that in our handbook. We do all of our communication, 99% of it in Twist, which is our team communication platform. All our project management in Todoist, which is built for individuals first, but now manages, you know, can help teams build really complex projects and manage task management that way. You know, we're doing this each and every day. And for us, it feels like second nature now. But it's it's funny when I look outside of our echo chamber and I and I see companies really struggling with some of this and people sitting in 18 hours of meetings a week and 
you know, being returned to office mandates coming in and you think, you know, this is actually possible if, if you're willing to put the effort into doing it. Right, right. And then companies who would want to put the effort in, what are some principles that you would recommend them to definitely put into place? I think it's a wonderful question because so often the the challenge that people face with remote work, the reason that my friend that I met referenced before had such a horrible experience w- during the pandemic is because a lot of managers were suddenly asked to switch their way of working. They built a career operating under one model and 25 years into it, they're suddenly at the snap of the fingers expected to to shift and, and do things completely differently. And applying old ways of working to new methodologies is just a recipe for disaster. But a lot of people were left with no other option. They weren't given the training. They weren't given the right tools. They were just asked to do something. And so it's it's no wonder that a lot of people got pretty rough experiences. And so I think where this starts is kind of looking at it from a slightly different angle. The managers, who they're managing is very important, right? So optimizing your hiring practices for getting people in the door that are built to do remote work that function in a highly functioning way in an asynchronous first environment. They're really good writers. They're really good communicators in the in the written form. They're succinct but thorough. They're able to to be the type of people who are going to take a problem and walk away and, and figure out how to solve it themselves before needing to hop into a conference room, virtual or in person, and need to figure it out with other people and those that really work well in a deep work environment. A lot of managers were given a team that preferred working in an office and they, they preferred or they were trained to work in those standards. So at Duist, you know, we were very fortunate, like we had been optimized to work this way for many, many years. And when the pandemic hit, we didn't really have to change anything. But a lot of teams weren't given that that advantage and, and the managers who they're managing, you know, they also were given the short end of the stick in that regard. So I think there's a lot to be said for that. And then I think making sure that people are given the right tools, the right practices, that they're share you know, they they're pointed to leaders in the space who can help mentor them is a great thing. I found a lot of unbelievable resources, a lot of companies who believe in build in public and sharing their learnings. I'm a part of the running remote community which is a fantastic space for people to share their learnings and challenges in a private space where, you know, pretty thorough with, hey, this is something we're, we're facing with our remote team. And does anybody have any challenges or answers or similar questions that they're trying to work on? Because maybe we can work through this together. So I think giving them those resources, making sure that you've set up your hiring practices to get them the right type of people on their team and then thinking back through everything that the company does, you know, all the workflows that you have in place, like, are they built for the way we used to work? Or are they built for the way we're working today? And a lot of teams don't even ask that question. They never they never challenge it. They just armed everybody with a Zoom account and went for it. <laughs> and that's setting the managers up for failure, I believe. Definitely setting them up for failure. And as we're getting to the end here, both as the head of remote at Duis, but also generally as someone who's speaking to a lot of company leaders, what are some misconceptions that people still have about remote? One of them, I think, is what we referenced earlier, that remote first means remote only. You hear people saying all the time that, you know, they'll beat up remote work because you lack human connection or you you never get to see your teammates in face-to-face. And I know very few teams that are operating under this model 
that never meet face to face. And I would venture to say that that intentional time that they're spending together during their few weeks together is equally or much more powerful than, you know, four or five days in the same setting every single day, all year, every year. I think that that is one misconception that people are coming around to, but you still hear that that narrative quite a bit. Connected to that is that you can't build culture and cohesion in a remote environment. I think, you know, Malcolm Gladwell's comments last year about, you know, what a miserable existence. You're just sitting alone in your bedroom in your underwear. Uh, how is this how you really want to live? You know, what have you done to yourself? That sounds pretty miserable. And I will be honest, I think that is the worst form of remote work that can be true. I know people that have had that experience. And so on one side of the coin, you could say that there's a misconception out there that those statements are completely false. And on the other side, you could say, you know, there's a misconception that those statements are true. I think acknowledging both sides is really important because acknowledging what the worst form can be and that people have had that experience gives us some, you know, some answers and some challenges to solve. But also looking at it on the other side and saying, you know what, there are plenty of teams out there that are building incredible cultures where people have really tight bonds and relationships with their teammates and true friends that they work with. And so, you know, I think that those are some of the things that are still TBD for a lot of teams out there. But for many of us, we're seeing already that totally possible to have them and and work in this model. Amazing. I think companies can take away so much from what you shared over the course of this interview. We're getting to the end and I wanted to ask you one final question. It's the same one that I ask everyone, which is that for the future of work, what is one big wish that you have or one thought that you would put on a big billboard? Um, that's a great question. And referencing, I realized when I was speaking earlier, I accidentally referenced another podcast, totally unrelated to our subject here. I am a big college fo- American college football fan. And there's a podcast that I love tuning into the late kick with Josh Pate to give him credit. And he says just often, just because you haven't doesn't mean you can't. And I, and I said that earlier in this conversation, and I think it's very true I talk to people every single day who, you know, haven't done something and they with remote work, with the future of work, and they say they can't. That's how they, in their mind, it's framed as I can't do this. And I would challenge anyone to, when you're thinking through your business infrastructure, considering this remote hybrid spectrum, you know, just because you haven't done it yet doesn't mean that you can't. So, you know, do the research, figure out what your objectives are first, do your research, and then and then see if it's a possibility because I think you'll find there's a lot of teams out there that have and are continuing to do it. Wow, I think we could not have asked for a better call to action at the end. Chase, thank you so much for being on. Yeah, thank you. This was a lot of fun. I appreciate it. It's time for the key lessons. That was Chase Warrington, the celebrated head of remote at Duist with 100 people across 35 countries. So here's a few lessons I picked up today. Number one, getting people together is actually a huge priority for Chase and the team. I was surprised. He is ahead of remote, pushing for more synchronicity. They got so good at async communication that they forgot to connect on a human level. So how do they do it? Doist helps people connect through one, mentorship trips, where a new hire gets sent to work with their mentor face-to-face for a week. Two, a mini retreat where direct teams spend a week together somewhere. And three, Doist Connect, a company-wide retreat. 
Duis doesn't see remote as a way to save costs on offices. And in fact, while they had some budget cuts last year, they actually increased their investment in getting people together. Chase also reminded us that if you invest in retreats, you have to consider how they connect to your core values and how people will get value out of it. Duis purposefully uses them for connection, spending 20% on work, 30% on activities, and 50% on rest and relaxation. And Chase found that in that 50%, that's where the true breakthroughs happen. And even if companies don't go fully remote, they can learn something from best practices, like documenting everything. As Chase said, we should ask ourselves, are we designing for how we used to work or how we work today? Thanks to Chase for sharing these insights, and I hope that you'll join me again in two weeks when I speak to author and futurist Alexandra Samuel, who has been writing for titles including the Harvard Business Review and the Wall Street Journal for over the past 15 years covering data, remote work, and AI. Go to flexos.org slash subscribe to be the first one to hear about new episodes.